As they are exiting, um, take out your Bibles and begin turning um, to Mark chapter 15. We're going to be in Mark 15, starting in verse 16, and we're going to go all the way to verse 39. Uh, it's page 852, if you're looking in the few Bibles. Uh, this is it, basically. Um, this, this is the end. Um, this is why we are here. This is the climax of this book in which we've spent over 13 months. Right? The whole point of Mark is to get to this moment. Right? It's to get to the cross. Uh, the great reformer Martin Luther um, once said, Crux probit omnia, which basically means the cross interprets everything. Right? The cross interprets everything. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.2, For I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. And I'm glad that Paul said that because that gives me justification um, for talking about the same thing over and over again. Right? Gospel, gospel, gospel. And that gospel comes through this cross. Right? I am here um, to preach nothing to you except for Christ and Him crucified. And if you've been paying attention at all this last year, I've basically been preaching to you about this passage every single week. All right, this shouldn't be anything new. But we do finally come to the moment, the heart of our faith, the reason for our salvation and the very reason that we are here, the cross. Right, a brutal, splintery, bloody instrument of torture and death, yet many of you are probably wearing it as a piece of jewelry. Well, that's because you can do that because of this moment and what Jesus does to transform that cross. Now, we've been saying from the very beginning that this gospel is about two things. Mark's gospel. It is about the identity of Jesus and it is about the mission of Jesus. Who he is and what he has come to do. And ultimately, listen, those are the two most important questions in the world. And those are the two questions that I am most concerned with you having the correct answer to. Well, our passage this morning is basically like a summary of the whole book. It's about those two things as well, the identity and the mission of Jesus, except I want to flip them and do them in reverse order. I want to look at a few critically important things from this passage that clarify for us what Jesus is doing. And then I want to look at what those things tell us about who he is. Right Under the mission, I, I want to hit two things. Two different complementary perspectives on the gospel. Right, We've got to understand both of these to get a full-orbed picture of the gospel. Right, and We're going to look at the cosmic and then the personal scope of the gospel. So first we're going to look at the curse reversed, which has to do with the cosmic scope of the gospel. And then we'll look at the cure secured, which deals with the personal, individual scope of the gospel. And then I want to close by looking at, at what those reveal to us about the identity of Jesus Christ with the confession professed. So curse, then the cure, and then the confession. And listen, I really want to extra urge you all to pay attention here this morning. Right? We are too used to the story of the death of Jesus. Right? We can now just breeze right over it and completely miss the gravity and the significance of what is going on. Right? This is it. This is why we are different. Right? This is the heart of what we believe. If you don't get this, you don't get it. Right? It is only at the cross that we can finally and truly understand who Jesus is and what he has done. Right? So we've got to get this right. right. So go ahead and look down at Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 16. Just follow along as I read. This is the word of the Lord. 
And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled the passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes um, mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether um, Elijah will come down to take it. Come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Let's, let's open up with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you um, for your word. Father, we come to you confessing um, that this is a passage, this is a topic um, Father, that we are not worthy um, to handle. Father, I am insufficient um, to explain um, the great um, truths um, that are portrayed in this, in this account. So, Father, I pray right now um, that you would work um, in this time. You would be strong where I am weak. Um, Father, you would be full um, where I am empty, um, Lord. And I pray that you would take this and apply this to all of our hearts, and that we would fully understand um, by your grace what it is that is going on here on this cross and what that means um, for us. So, Father, I pray that you would get all the glory in, in this time. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so last time we, we, we closed with the scourging of Jesus. Remember, it was this brutal whipping. Uh, they had um, hooks and metal and bone and passionate. They say, they just literally ripped the flesh off of your back. Right? But that was only the beginning of things for Jesus. He's taken inside by these soldiers, we're told, and they bring together the whole battalion, or, or a cohort, which would have been about 600 Roman soldiers, and the mockery and the torment continues. But I really want to emphasize one thing before we get into some of these details. Back in Mark 14, 21, Jesus said, For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. And in Acts 4.28, it says that God had appointed Herod and Pilate and the Gentiles and the Jews to do whatever his hand and his plan had predestined to take place, right? God is in control here, right? God is orchestrating 
these events. God is sovereign over even this, the most wicked and most sinful moment in all of history, right? He's still working. He's still using this to bring about his purposes. And I want to remind you of this because there is so much important symbolism kind of woven into this passage, right? That we might miss if you just breeze right over it. Right? These soldiers are they're committing horrible acts and doing their best to ridicule and mock Jesus. While in fact, their mockery reveals to us many true things about Jesus and teaches us much about his mission. They're conducting this sort of kind of mock coronation service. Remember, they brought on a pilot and said he claims to be a king. Right? That's why he's being killed. Caesar does not like rivals. So this is a coronation service. They're bowing down to Jesus. They're crying out, Hail, King of the Jews. While at the same time, they are beating him and spitting on him. They, they want Jesus dressed for the part, so they clothe him in a purple cloak, which was the, the color of royalty. And then, they do something really strange. Then, they twist together a crown of thorns, and they place it on his head. Right? And that's where I want to pause um, for a few minutes. Have you ever really thought about this crown? Right? It kind of seems really random. Right? You just have a bunch of thorns lying around in the middle of this big metropolitan city of Jerusalem. What, what were those doing there? When I was taught as a kid about the crown, it was always just, that, oh, they would have been big, sharp thorns, and that would have really hurt um, on his head. Um, sure, yes, that probably would have hurt a lot. But that's not the point of the crown of thorns. All right, again, the physical sufferings of Jesus are never the point in the Gospels. They're never the emphasis. We just tend to make them the emphasis. No, there's nothing random um, in Scripture. Everything happens for a reason. There is much more to this crown than initially meets the eye. You've probably never noticed this because you're not weird like me. But have you ever noticed how often thorns come up in the Bible? It just seems really weird. You pull out a concordance and look up thorns. There's, there's dozens and dozens of references. It seems a little odd and out of place um, in a book about God and about Jesus and salvation. But thorns are everywhere. Almost from the very beginning. Uh, we are introduced to thorns all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17. Remember, God has created everything. He has created everything good in Genesis 1 and 2. No thorns. But we mess it all up in Genesis chapter 3. Right? The man and the woman, they reject, they disobey God. And God, because He is just, must do something about their crime. So He comes and He pronounces judgment. And to the man, in verse 17, he says, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Right? When God first passes judgment, when he curses the ground as a consequence for sin, Thorns are used as a symbol of that curse. And this, this theme shows up again and again in the Bible. In Isaiah 5, um, God talks about the great judgment that is coming upon Jerusalem for their sin. And in verse 6, he says, I will make it a waste. Right? Briars and thorns shall grow up in it. Right? Symbols of God's judgment. Symbols of a curse. Listen to Paul's words in Romans 8, verse 20. And pay particular attention to who it is that is doing the action in this verse. Paul writes, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. 
right? Creation was subjected to futility. When Adam and Eve sinned, right, sin did not automatically mess everything up. It didn't all just kind of fall apart at once. No, Paul says that as a result of their sin, God came in and subjected, subjected creation to futility, right? That's the curse. God cursed creation, but he did it in hope, right? So there is this curse, and the first symbol that is given of that curse is these thorns. So it is no coincidence then that Jesus is here being crowned with thorns. Right? In Colossians 1.20, Paul says that through Christ, God was reconciling all things to himself. And this is what we refer to as the cosmic scope of the gospel. This is the big picture. Generally, when we talk about the gospel, right, we talk about Jesus dying to save sinners. And that is absolutely correct. But that's actually not all that he is doing. He is doing so much more than that. He is reconciling all things to God. He is bearing the curse. He is setting creation free from its bondage, right? The scope of redemption is just as big as the scope of the fall. And the fall clearly affected everything. Thus, Jesus is dying here not just to save sinners, but to reverse the curse, to reconcile all things to himself, to restore God's good creation. And Jesus accomplished this in his death. But he showed us that he was going to do this in his life as well. Remember, he talks about the kingdom that was coming. Again, don't think big castle and physical kingdom. No, the kingdom of God is just where God rules and reigns, right? It's where God is in charge, where he rules. And Jesus announced that that kingdom came with him. And then he demonstrated it with his actions. All of his miracles, except for one teaching miracle, they are all miracles of restoration, right? Restoration to health, restoration to life, restoration to freedom from demonic influence. In his ministry, Jesus is signifying what he's going to do. He's already starting to roll back the curse. He's already restoring creation. Romans 8, one more time. For the creation waits with eager longing. It was subjected to futility because of him who subjected it in hope that creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. Right? That's what we're talking about here. Creation has been cursed, but it waits to be set free and restored. That's what Christ is doing. He is starting to reverse the curse. One of my favorite Christmas carols is Joy to the World. And it's because of, I really like, it's like the second or the third verse, where it says, No more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. As far as the curse goes, that's just as far as his grace goes. And that is what is symbolized here in the crown of thorns. It doesn't just hurt. As it is placed on his head, it shows us that he is bearing the curse for us. As far as the curse extends, so extends his grace. Whatever that curse entails, whether it is tears and suffering and, and cancer and, and divorce and death, all of those things that are results of the curse, Jesus is here foreshadowing that he is going to fix all Right? That's what we see at the very end of the Bible in Revelation 21 where he says, I am making all things new. Right? He is reversing the curse. And that's what the crown of thorns symbolizes. But that's not the only place where we see that in this passage. Right? There's also this business of the cross. 
In verse 21, we see that Jesus was so weak that he couldn't even carry his own cross. So they pull this man, um, Simon, and force him to bear it for Jesus. And this wasn't the whole cross, by the way. Like, when I was a kid, my dad took me to this evangelism thing. It was in the, the Charlotte Coliseum, uh, where the Hornets played back in the day. Um, there was this guy up on the stage, tens of thousands of people, and he's talking about Jesus. And the whole time, he's, like, carving out of this big block of wood. He's carving out a cross, like a whole cross. And then, like, he spends ten minutes, like, lugging the cross around the stage to show us how miserable it was um, to carry. Again, incorrect, right? He, he's emphasizing the physical and not mentioning the, the spiritual suffering of what's actually going on here, right? But he didn't even get the physical part, right? Because Jesus didn't carry the whole cross, right? The vertical cross beams were fixed into the ground at the place of execution, Right? The criminals had to carry the crossbeam on their shoulders, on their back. Right? Every criminal carried it there. Right? They would then nail that up to the vertical crossbeam, and then they would nail the criminal up to the whole thing. Right? That's what he's bearing, but he can't even carry that. And this man has to come in and carry it for him, right? the cross. But the cross, what else is it referred to as in the, throughout Scripture? It's given a more generic name. Often, Paul refers to the cross simply as the tree. Right, and this is very intentional. In Deuteronomy, or in Acts 5.30, Peter says to the Pharisees, he says, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. And this comes from Deuteronomy 21.23, which says that a man who is hanged on a tree is cursed. Paul picks up this motif in Galatians 3 and writes in verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Right? There is a cosmic curse that Christ is reversing, symbolized in the crown of thorns, but there is also a personal aspect to that curse. Three verses earlier, in Galatians 3.10, Paul wrote, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law in Deuteronomy. Well, I don't know about you, but I have not done a very good job of abiding perfectly um, by all things written in God's law. Right? Therefore, according to Paul, I was under a curse. Right? We over, and that curse brings death. Crimes demand payment. That just makes sense. Right? Sin demands justice. And Jesus, being hung up on that cross, he's taking on that curse. Paul says that he is literally becoming a curse for us. And that then brings us to the personal scope of the gospel, right? Kind of the gospel on the ground, uh, the individual sinner. We've seen cosmic all creation, but it's also personal. It's about the salvation of individuals. Christ comes to cure what most ails us. By becoming a curse, he reverses the curse, and then he secures the cure. But how, right? How does he do that? How does Jesus, hanging up naked on a cross, accomplish our salvation? Right, two important things that I want us to take note of here that reveal to us what's going on. All right, two more C's. We're going to look at the cry, and then I want to look at the curtain. Right, Jesus has been led out to Golgotha, which just means place of a skull. That's what Calvary means, by the way. Right, not cavalry. These are two different words. Calvary is a bunch of guys on horses fighting a battle. Calvary is the Latin word, um, just meaning the same thing as Golgotha. The Golgotha, the place of the skull. They bring him there, and then look at verse 24. <clears throat> Seems kind of strange. Verse 24. And they crucified him. That's it. It's kind of 
kind of anticlimactic, isn't it? Right? Jesus is strung up on a tree. He's being killed in the worst way possible. And all Mark says is, and they crucified him. And again, this is really important because as we've been emphasizing, Mark never um, focuses on the physical sufferings of Jesus. Right? There is so much more here going on than the physical sufferings of Jesus. Thousands and thousands of people died the exact same physical death as Jesus. It's not that remarkable. That's not the point, right? That's why I'm uncomfortable with movies like The Passion and these visible, visual portrayals of the death of Jesus. They can only emphasize to us the physical nature of his death, but they completely miss the real point. They completely miss what is actually going on here and what really matters. The physical sufferings of Jesus would not have even registered on the scale of his spiritual sufferings. And we see that in his cry in verse 34. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right, we just read this earlier. Jesus is quoting uh, from David's psalm in Psalm 22. And if you read the two together, you'll notice that Psalm 22 is just all over this passage. Right? But Mark is, is using Psalm 22. This is a fulfillment of Psalm 22. And we've already seen how Mark chapter 14, the previous chapter, was all about the progressive abandonment of Jesus, all which culminates here. Right? He has been abandoned by his disciples. He has been betrayed by Judas. He has been denied by Peter. He has been condemned and turned over by the Jewish authorities. He's been crucified by the Roman authorities. And now here he is finally and utterly alone as Jesus Christ is forsaken by God himself. No physical suffering can compare to this. Notice back in verse 33 that darkness has covered the land for three hours. The, 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 the time, the, the sixth of the night, this would have been from noon until three. They count time from six in the morning, right? From noon until three. And darkness in Scripture is symbolic of God's judgment. Think back to the ninth plague um, in Egypt, right? Darkness covers the land of Egypt. Or Amos 8, chapter, chapter 8, verse 9, which says, And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. God's judgment. His wrath is being poured out. The cross is a transaction. Right? There is an exchange that is going on. There is a payment. There has been a whole lot of sin in this world since the fall. And God is righteously and justly angry at that sin. I mean, a just judge must punish crimes, right? So a just God must punish them as well. And that is what is happening here, right? That is what this darkness symbolizes. God's judgment against sin carried out in God's judgment against Jesus. Why? Atonement. Right? That word, atonement, simply means to be made at one, at one with God. It is simply reconciliation. He is paying our debt. He is redeeming us. He is setting us free. He is saving us. Right? The gospel starts off with bad news, right? God is holy and just. That's bad news for us because we are sinful rebels. And that sin and that rebellion separates us from God. And he would be perfectly just in leaving us in that state, leaving us to die separated from him, but he doesn't. Right? The cross is God's divine rescue plan. Right? It all comes down to this. This is your only hope of salvation. Not anything that you do, but what God has done for you. Right? You sinned, I sinned, we deserve to die. There must be a payment for that sin. But what we amazingly see here is that Jesus Christ 
God Himself, the sinless one, becoming a curse, becoming sin for us, He switches places. Right? The very heart of the gospel is this substitution. If you want a really strong return for a really small investment, and you want to read one of the best books ever written on the cross and what's happening here, go pick up John Stott's The Cross of Christ. So you can get like 12 or 15 bucks on Amazon. It'll be worth your time. And I quote it a lot, so you can say, oh, that's Stott, oh, that's Stott, that's Stott. I want to read you just a little bit of what he says kind of about this because it's, it's just brilliant. Right? John Stott writes, he says, The righteous, loving Father humbled himself to become in and through his only Son, flesh, sin, and a curse for us. In order to redeem us without compromising his own character, the biblical gospel of atonement is of God satisfying himself by substituting himself for us. The concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. Right? Pay attention to this. I use this a lot. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself only where God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives that belong to God alone. God accepts penalties that belong to man alone. That's unbelievable, right? The, the cross is God substituting himself into the place that man deserved to be. And that's why Jesus' cry is so traumatic. He is in our place. He is bearing the full wrath of God for our sin, sin that we can only begin to pay for with an eternity in hell. He is taking all of it, all God's wrath at the countless sins of the countless people that Jesus was dying for. He takes all of that wrath in this one moment. Right? The gospel uh, in Isaiah 53 says he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He's doing it, but it's our stuff. Yet, he, yet we have seen him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our Right? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is experiencing separation and forsakenness and the wrath of God. It is substitution. It is divine self-satisfaction through divine self-substitution. Right? God placates His own wrath and His own justice by punishing His own Son in our place. It's the Son of God is forsaken by God. So that we can be accepted by God and become God's sons. Say that one more time. The Son of God is forsaken by God so that we can be accepted by God and then become God's sons. Right? It's an amazing exchange. And look back up at the beautiful irony of the words of Jesus' mockers in verse 31. I love this. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Exactly. Exactly. Right? To save others, he could not save himself. If he lives, everyone else dies. If he dies, everyone else can live. And that's the gospel. God sacrificing himself and dying for man. It's completely unheard of. Right? It's, it's grace. It is utterly unlike anything else out there. Right, and in John's account of what's going on here, Jesus' final words in John 19, verse 30, are so important. He says, it is 
finished. Like we, we seem to kind of try to change that around. We, we make it to be it is mostly finished, right? He says, no, it is finished. Not almost finished, not mostly finished, with a little bit of work left for you to do. Not it will be finished once you do your part. No, it is finished. If there is anything that remains for you to do, then it is not finished. Right? And people just don't get this. Salvation must be free. That's why it is grace. Right? That's his cry. He is forsaken so that we can be accepted. Somehow, in some way that we cannot begin to comprehend, God himself, the second person of the Trinity, is forsaken by God the Father, the first person of the Trinity. And it is so that we never have to experience that forsakenness and that aloneness. That's the cry. That's what he is going through. That's why the spiritual is just so much infinitely beyond the physical. Right? So cry, but what about the curtain? Look at verses 37 through 38. And Jesus uttered a loud cry, and he breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Again, we can skip right over that, but don't, don't miss the significance of this. Jesus dies, and right when he dies, the, the veil, the curtain in the temple is torn in two. Why? What, 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 what does the curtain represent? Well, at its most basic, the curtain represents separation. Right? Think back to our discussions about the temple. Right? The temple represented God's presence with his people. Right? Our problem is that God is holy and that we are not. Right? So one of the big questions that the whole Old Testament is dealing with is, how does a holy God dwell and interact with unholy people? Do you remember what happens to Uzzah in 2 Samuel 7? Remember, he reaches out and tries to touch and steady the ark. Boom, he is struck dead. David's mad about it, but he's dead. Right, in Exodus 33, Moses asks to see God's glory, and God says that, that he cannot, man cannot even see um, God and live. And this just seems very foreign and very strange to us, but this is because we have lost any sense of the holiness and the glory of God. He is so utterly unlike us. He's not just, he's not your buddy, right? He's God, right? He is the transcendent creator, God of the universe. Right? Deuteronomy 4, 24 describes God as an all-consuming fire. 1 Peter 1, 24 says that we are grass, right? When grass meets fire, it does not go very well for the grass, right? So we have a problem. Right? God is holy, and we are not. And that's where the veil comes in. It separates us. It shields us from God's holiness. But at the same time, it also bars access to God. Only once a year, on the Day of Atonement, did anyone go behind the veil. And that was only the high priest, only wearing a super special and important um, outfit, only after going through this extensive purification and preparation process, he would go behind the veil into the Holy of Holies and he would make a sacrifice for the sins of the people every single year. And the book of Hebrews talks about this a whole lot. And it, it mentions the curtain a whole lot. Listen to Hebrews 9, verses 6 through 8, describing all this. It says, The priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people. But this, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. As long as the veil is up, access to God is barred. 
Right? Our unholiness and our sin necessitates this veil. We cause the separation between us and God. But when Jesus dies, the veil comes down. The wall is destroyed. Jesus, through his death, opens up direct access to God. Right Back to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus is our great high priest. He enters into the Holy of Holies, and he sacrifices himself for us, and in so doing, he puts away sin. Nothing else, nothing else can do it. He does it. Then we get to Hebrews 10, verses 19 and 20, which says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. When Jesus' flesh was torn, the curtain was torn. When the curtain was torn, the way to God was opened. There is no more need for temple. No more sacrifices. No more work on our behalf. We don't need a, a pope or a high priest kind of going between and kind of mediating um, for us. No, the veil coming down symbolizes the way being open and our reconciliation to God. We were separated. We were aliens. We were enemies. Now we are reconciled, made allies, friends, and children. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. That doesn't quite have the same ring to us, but... Table fellowship back then was like, that was the sign of fellowship. That was, you guys were in a good spot when you were doing it, right? So we were his enemies. Now he invites us into the feast. Now he makes us um, part of his table. Jesus, thank you. That's why that song is so um, fantastic, right? The barrier has been knocked down. The way has been made open to Jesus. And that is why Jesus can say that he is the way, right? You can only get to God through him, and Jesus makes that possible through his death on the cross. No death, no cross, there's just no salvation, right? Listen, it is the only way that God could save us. If it wasn't the only way that God could save us, then the whole thing is a dumb waste of time, right? Why go through all that and throw us another way? No, this was the only way for God to save sinners. That's why the cross is so important. That is why you cannot understand the identity of Jesus until you understand the cross of Jesus. It is here that we finally see him fully revealed. His identity and his mission. He has come to seek and to save the lost. He has come to give his life as a ransom for many. He has come to secure our cure. And that finally brings us to the confession. In verse 39, our last verse. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. I, literarily, if you read Mark just as a work of literature, everything in the book has been building to this moment. Right? This, this is the climax. Remember, the very first verse of the book, the, the theme of the entire book opens, 1-1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We've said that the whole point of the gospel of Mark is to convince you that Jesus is those two things. That he is the, the Christ, which means Messiah, the anointed one who the Savior promised in the Old Testament 
and that he is God's son. That's all Mark's trying to do, show you that he is these two things. So that theme statement opens the book, and in the climax of the first act of the book, almost at the very center of the book, is Peter's confession in chapter 8, verse 29, when he says, you are the Christ, curtain down, first act closed. We've got the Messiah identity established. Right? And then now here at the very end of the second act, from the end of the Gentile overseeing the crucifixion of Jesus, we get the second half of the identity. Truly, this man was the Son of God. The gospel of Jesus, who is the Christ and who is the Son of God, boom. Mark has made his case. Right? The revelation of the identity and the mission, the person and the work of Jesus is complete. We cannot know Jesus until we know him on the cross. We cannot understand Jesus until we understand the cross of Jesus. It is the supreme revelation of Jesus as God's son. And the centurion sees it and he's the first to get it. And he is the first one to confess Jesus as the Son of God. The most complete confession of Christ in the book. This is the culmination of everything that Mark has been doing. Here is Jesus. Here, here is who he is. He is God, but his mission is completely unexpected. Listen, the great scandal of Christianity is that verses 25 and verses 39 are both true. And they crucified him, and truly this man was the Son of God. Right? Jesus' full identity is inseparably linked to his substitutionary death on the cross. This centurion's confession is a result of his witness of the death of Jesus, of God dying for man. And listen, quite honestly, this makes no sense to the world. Right? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1.23 that we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and folly, foolishness, to the Gentiles. In an ancient world, in the ancient world, suffering was always a sign of God's judgment and rejection. Right? The concept of a suffering Messiah was ridiculous to the Jews. And the concept of a dying God was unthinkable to the Gentiles. This idea was completely offensive and completely foolish. But it is the very heart of the gospel. God suffering and dying for man. Why is this so important? Listen, first of all, objectively, because it is the only actual way of salvation. Listen, sin is real. We all know that. We, we feel it. We, you cannot deny the sin and the guilt. Right? Paul says, man, the things that I want to do, I don't do them. The things that I don't want to do, man, I do them all the time. Right? We've all got that feeling in us. We all know that we have this sin issue. And God is, is very real. If we're honest with ourselves, we know that as well. Right? So we've got a holy God and we've got a whole bunch of sin. Right? And something must be done about that sin. And the good news is that He has done it. Nowhere else do you get God Himself taking care of your sin problem. Everywhere else, you've got to take care of it yourself. Listen. Um, Islam. You've got to follow the, 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 what is it? the five pillars of Islam. Right? And if you do those well enough, if you go on your pilgrimages and you do your prayers regularly enough, and if your good outweighs your bad, then maybe, maybe, there's no assurance, but then maybe you'll get there. Right? You've you got to earn your way. The, the, the noble eightfold path in Buddhism. Here are these things that you've got to do, good works included, and if you do a good enough job, you'll get there. Catholicism, listen, if you, if you 
if you say enough, if you go to confession enough, if you say, uh, you do your penance and enough of your Hail Marys and you get, you know, the, the right baptism and the extreme unction and all these things, if you do that well enough, then maybe, you know, you only spend a little bit of time in purgatory, but then after that, um, you can be saved. Listen, there's, there's one factor among all these things that are the same. You're doing something. These are all different ways that people prescribe to you to save yourself. And listen, I'm just telling you right up front that you will fail. Right? I, I've been there. I, I've tried it. Uh, I've tried a lot. Uh, and I have failed every single time. You can't do it. You can never be good enough. Your good will never outweigh your bad. You can never get rid of the guilt. You can never get rid of the sin by yourself. Only God can do that. And that's why the gospel is so unlike anything else. God comes and does it for you. What everyone else says you've got to do for yourself. That's why it's grace. That's why it's good news. And that's why it's a gift. God himself coming and sacrificing himself so that you can live. That is an amazing, amazing announcement. Right? Objectively, then, it's the only way for there to be a salvation for sin. Only God can take care of that problem. But listen, also, subjectively, God coming after you and suffering and dying for you, it's so important as well because it is the only thing that will actually change you. Not shame, not feeling guilty, not fear of hell, not the law. None of those things will change you. Only the cross can. Because the cross is the ultimate proof of God's love for you. This is, this is what God has gone through to rescue us. Right? This, in this passage, is the cost of your salvation. Seeing Jesus in anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane, witnessing His physical torture, hearing His cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what changes you. Right? If you see Jesus giving up the infinite love of His Father out of His infinite love for you, it will begin to change you. It will soften your hard heart. It will open your blind eyes. It will begin to shine light into your darkness. Right? It will begin to free you to turn away from your sin and those things that enslave you and to trust um, and rest in Him. That's what love and grace does. It changes you. It, it changes everything, right? Through the cross, Jesus is here. He, he's reversing the curse. He, he's turning it all back for us. And He is securing our cure. This is what He has accomplished um, up on the cross. Have you confessed? Do you believe? Do you rest in the fact that He is the Messiah? The Son of God come to suffer and die in your place. And that He is your only hope for forgiveness and life. And if your answer is yes to that, has that belief changed you? Has that belief manifested itself in some way in your life? Because listen, it always does. Look in this passage. Go home and read it over and over again. Look at what he has done for you. That is marvelous. That is matchless grace. Trust him, right? He, he demonstrates here on this cross that he is worth your trust. Right, let's, let's go to him in a word of Father, nothing that I can say can convince anyone um, of the truth um, that is contained in, in these words. Father, I could preach as brilliant a sermon as possible, um, Lord, and it could fall on deaf ears if your spirit does not work and use it. So, Father, I pray um, that you would use um, your word, use what was um, truly spoken, um, Lord, and I pray that you would pierce our hearts um, with it, um, Lord, convict us. 
of our sin. Convict us of how often we ignore um, the cross and the grace and what you have done for us and how little we consider it and how little it affects our lives, um, Lord. I pray that you would make that change, um, Lord. We would fully understand the amazing grace that is on display here, that we would see our sin that necessitates the very death of the Son of God, um, Lord, but then you willingly um, did that um, for us so that we would be even more amazed um, by your love and by your grace. Um, Father, we, we love you and we thank you. Um, Lord, I desperately want to understand this better and I desperately want everyone in here to understand it better and to be changed um, by your grace. Lord, we thank you and we ask for you to work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.